Our scripture today is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 21. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? The word of the Lord. More tough words from Paul that are nonetheless gracious and deep. So we've been working through the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the ancient church in Corinth. And that's a church that he started, that he planted, that he, he, he spiritually parented. And he's writing to them now a few years later. It's a very young church, very new church in a pagan environment. And uh, he's, he's got some difficult things to say to them in this letter. And so we're just week by week following what Paul had to say to them as ancient wisdom for current issues. And those of you who have been following along with us know that in the first several chapters of this letter, Paul is alluding to, he's referring to a conflict and division that was taking place within the Corinthian church. Uh, some people, uh, some, some, high uh, sorry, some high personalities among them uh, were creating divisions uh, based on personality, based on preference. And uh, some of these high-profile people, and Paul reveals who they are in, um, I guess I didn't, no, I didn't add that, that slide. Sorry. Okay. Let me go back a second because I had some computer problems today. Uh, Paul is, is calling out for the first time in the letter some folks who are arrogant in the church uh, that, were, that were really kind of causing and leading these divisions. 
And so what Paul does, uh, because a lot of the conflict uh, comes from their criticisms, not even of each other, but of Paul himself. All right, the, the primary conflict as the letter unfolds is actually between the Corinthians led by a few high-profile personalities and Paul himself. And with great irony and sarcasm, Paul contrasts these leaders with himself and with other apostles. And, and he, say, he says things to them like, already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. You are wise in Christ. You are strong. You are held in honor. And then he contrasts that with himself. He says, God's established us, God's exhibited us apostles as the last of all, like men sentenced to death, a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake. We're weak. We're held in disrepute. We hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor. We work with our hands. We're like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. What's so plainly contrasted in that portion of the passage is their pride and his humility. Is the culture of honor in Corinth and the attitude of weakness that's present in Paul and the other apostles. And what Paul was doing there was pastorally fronting them. He was pastorally confronting their philosophy of success with a theology of sacrifice. He's trying to replace their idea of success and mobility, upward mobility, with a concept of servanthood and sacrifice. And my aim today is to prove that we all need that type of confrontation in our lives. We need that type of pastoral, gentle confrontation to replace our philosophy of success as Americans with a biblical theology of sacrifice. Now, the picture I'm projecting for you is basically a crucible, and a crucible refines precious metals under tremendous heat. And sometimes people refer to a crucible as a very difficult time in your life, a time of trial and great testing. Well, just as a crucible refines precious things, purifies something until it's precious, but under tremendous stress, discipleship refines you as God provides for you parents in Christ, which is really what Paul is showing himself to be here for the Corinthians. Discipleship refines us as God provides us with parents in Christ. Discipleship, and that's what I want to talk to you about today, discipleship is a crucible in which correction and love refine you through relationship. All those components need to be there. And I want to talk to you today about what discipleship actually looks like and what discipleship looks for, what it's what its goal is, what its objective is in our lives and in our relationships, and ultimately what discipleship for power and hope and success needs to look to. What discipleship looks like in our lives, what it looks for as its goal, and what it must look to. What discipleship looks like is 
if you're not familiar with Christianity or biblical terms and ideas, discipleship, because people don't talk like that. You don't hear about that in the news or in contemporary writings, what's, what's discipleship. Discipleship basically looks like mentoring. I think we can relate to mentoring. Discipleship kind of looks like mentoring, but with less an emphasis on skill development and more an emphasis on soul transformation. So a good disciple maker, as Paul himself illustrates here in this passage, and I think throughout the entire letter, a good disciple maker nurtures a relational dynamic of correction and love, always stressing and trying to balance the two together. Paul does it right here in, in, in the beginning and the end of a particular section. In verse 14, Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Right? He kinda, he, he's going heavy on them with some tough love, and he's using irony, and he's being sarcastic with them. And then he, he pulls back from that, and he very gently says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now, the word there he uses, admonishment, it's supposed to denote, it's supposed to convey care, not retribution or punishment. It's supposed to convey trust, not shame. He closes the entire section in verse 21 by saying, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, with love, in a spirit of gentleness? This is one of those wait until your father gets home phrases. But you see what Paul's doing. He's both stern and gentle at the same time, constantly balancing the two. That's what a good parent does. But their situation uh, was unique. Their relationship to Paul was, was very unique because Paul considered himself as an apostle and a missionary and a church planner. He considered them, he considered them his spiritual children. He considered himself to be their spiritual father. This is a bit unique. We can't apply it in every situation since then. Paul was their spiritual father. Look at what he says in verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He uses this word guides, which in ancient Greek culture, because it was a Greek word that he's using here in the original uh, manuscript, the original letter, the Greek word for guides there, it, it, it was to be understood more like a like a life escort that a young aristocratic male child would be assigned with to train that child up culturally, to teach the child how to act, good manners, how to behave in public. This life mentor, this, this tutor, uh, this caretaker went with the child everywhere, out of the house, in the marketplace, uh, until the child came of age and was ready to act like an adult. Think, think of a governess in more modern standards. But if you've seen the movie, The Sound of Music, uh, what you know about the Von Trapp children was they needed more than a governess. They needed a parent. That's what Maria became to them. That's what their father should have been to them. They had a governess, they had many, but what they really need was a loving parent. And that's the, that's the distinction Paul's trying to make here. Father distinguishes Paul as someone who gave birth to them, spiritually speaking. And Paul's looking 
for in them. He's looking for a family resemblance. He's looking for them to be like himself in thought and in action. And so he says to them in verses 16 and 17, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. Timothy was was uh, another leader in the church, uh, a person that Paul had taken under his wing and discipled personally and entrusted with a lot of responsibility and authority. Uh, Timothy was a son in the Lord to Paul. Timothy bore the family resemblance. And as a big brother, so to speak, Timothy was sent by Paul to Corinth to kind of pass along that family resemblance, to be an example, because Paul couldn't get there himself at the time. The difference between a parent and a guide is that a parent has skin in the game, quite literally and and, uh, figuratively. Discipleship looks like, uh, from a spiritual perspective, one person beginning to resemble another person. Spiritually speaking, discipleship is one person starts to look like another person. And Jesus said as much. In Luke chapter 30, he said, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And Paul, in the same spirit of discipleship, in almost all of his letters in the New Testament, would say very similar things like what he said to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Notice how it's holistic. It's not just intellectual and didactic. It's transformational. What you have heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And so Mark Dever, in his book, Discipling, defines discipleship as transmitting the knowledge of God and His Word through every moment of life, through every moment of life, initiating a relationship in which you teach, correct, model, and love. So discipleship, even more so than mentoring, is basically spiritual parenting. And as some of you know, uh, sometimes, especially at the start, discipleship feels like one person spoon-feeding another. And sometimes, after much training, discipleship feels like two people staying in touch. So, um, how do you trust people to disciple you? Who can you trust, right? So, pastors and priests are in the news for the wrong reasons, usually, And we've all been disenfranchised or let down or put down by authority figures in our lives, sometimes within organized religion. And and we've been raised in a culture that teaches us, uh, for better and for worse, uh, to always be skeptical of authority, to always be skeptical of any kind of organized institutional authority, especially of the religious kind. Uh, So how do you trust people, fallen, imperfect people, to disciple you? How do you trust yourself discipling someone else? And I want to open it up to you just for a few minutes. 
Why is it so difficult to submit to the type of dynamic, the type of interpersonal relational dynamic that the Apostle Paul is talking about here? Just look at Mark Dever's definition of discipleship. Why is it hard for you and I to submit ourselves to this type of a relationship in life? Brief answers, please. What do you think? Yeah, Annie. Ah, pride. He keeps talking about this arrogance, right? He keeps using the word arrogant, which literally means puffed up like a hot air balloon because that's what you're filled with. Good, pride. Pride makes it really hard to entrust yourself to somebody. Did I see another hand? Yeah. Thank you. Yes, broken, earthly, parental relationships. Um, our default, when you come to and under, when you meet the God of the Bible, who calls himself our Heavenly Father, uh, our, default, our default assumptions with God is to project our, our, the relationships we've had and experiences with our parents onto God. Yes. Yeah. The, the historical misuse of discipleship. Okay, so there are times where people have taken discipleship beyond what, what we're talking about today. Uh, and so we have, we, have, we have memories. We remember what we were treated like once. Uh, or our friends or parents have told us stories. Entire subgroups have collective memories of, of, of bad times and bad leadership examples. Good. Uh, over here? Yeah, Bob. A fear of rejection. Great. Fear of rejection. It is not an easy... For some of you, some of you extroverted, look at me kind of people, it's not hard to say, would you train me? Would you teach me? Would you pray with me? I have a question for you, but, but for some of us, it's very hard. It's very hard to, to open yourself up to another human being because there's always the fear of they won't have the time, they won't think much of you, they won't consider you worth their energy. Thank you. Fear of rejection, Brandon. Keep our private stuff private. We don't want to air our dirty laundry with others. And, and you know, there, there is an issue of discernment. Like sometimes we're afraid to be open and honest. Sometimes we have to be discerning, right? You, sometimes you have precious information, and if you share it with the wrong person, uh, there's a negative impact. And Jesus had something to say about throwing pearls before swine. And that's what he meant by that. Dan? Hectic life, yeah. Uh, like, what American is not involved in, in, in a hectic form of life? Uh, we're busy. We're, we're, uh, we're always busy. We don't have a lot of time. Yeah, thank you. Fear of being judged, yeah, and that goes along with some of this other being rejected, dirty laundry, fear of being judged, fear, fear of being or feeling condemned and, and the shame that goes along with that. Maybe one more. Um, uh, I think you had your hand up first, Cynthia. Hmm. Yeah. 
okay, so Cynthia flipped, turned it around and said, what, what about fear of being a judgmental person yourself? What about feeling like you're going to take, take that opportunity to bless or, or lead or encourage another person and, um, and abuse it? Um, are you equipped? Are you ready? Uh, Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Uh, so if you know that about yourself, which I believe about myself, uh, I'm the biggest sinner I know. Uh, can I trust myself in, in a relationship like that? Uh, really good insights, everybody. I, and I think, I think you're all raising very practical, very important concerns, uh, which is why discipleship needs to look for, as its goal, Christ's image, not a person's image. The goal for discipleship needs to be Christ-likeness because everything you're raising is absolutely true. And so the goal for discipleship must be Christ-likeness. The goal of discipleship is that people become transformed to resemble Jesus Christ, not you, not me, not the discipler. Look, I'll show you. Verses 16 and 17, Paul goes on to say, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy to remind you of my ways, and the key words are, my ways in Christ. And Paul will go on to say at the beginning of chapter 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. And here is the basic principle for reconciling reconciling your skepticism with leadership and authority with the Bible's mandate to submit to people, to submit to one another. We've got to reconcile our skepticism and our self-doubt and our fear of rejection and our memory of past abuses with the biblical mandate to submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. We imitate one another. We imitate in a person. Here, here's, here's the rule. We imitate in another person what glorifies God, not what glorifies the person. That will help you in every single concern and in every single situation. We imitate in another person that which in them glorifies God, not what glorifies them. This is precisely what the Corinthians were not doing. You you may remember Paul quotes them and their slogans from chapter 1. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. The reply to that was, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? So clearly this is not a power play on Paul's part. He's not trying to indoctrinate them as, as powerful leaders in history have always done. He's not trying to indoctrinate them into his way of life by reminding them to imitate him and by sending Timothy as, a, as though Timothy were a crony off to them. No, he's not doing that. He keeps pointing them back to Jesus. He's saying, I wasn't, cru- I wasn't crucified for you. You were baptized into my name. Imitate me as I am imitating Christ. Because we're easily attracted to personalities and to styles. Sometimes that's why you pick the church you pick. You're attracted to some kind of style or culture or personality. And I'm not saying that's all bad. uh, But style and personality highlight an individual. Discipleship, true discipleship, highlights the truth and work of Jesus 
in an individual. And the distinction is crucial. If you're serious about knowing Jesus, if you're serious about discovering who Jesus is and following Jesus, then you must find somebody who's already imitating him. Sermons, talks, podcasts, apps, books, reading the Bible itself. All of these things will not disciple you. Oh, they are of great benefit, but they will not disciple you. The truth and grace of Christ must be modeled to you. And it was so important that Paul talks about this in every letter he wrote. Check it out. It must be modeled to you so that as you mature, you can model it to other people. Someone pours into you. Someone refines you. You pour into somebody else. You help refine somebody else. So that as you mature, you model it to others. But the family resemblance always points back to Jesus. The family resemblance should never pop. The family resemblance should never point back to a Paul or a Peter or a Martin Luther King Jr. or a Martin Luther or a John Calvin or fill in the blank, your favorite superhero. The family resemblance must always point back to Jesus. So I'm encouraging each one of you, as I have encouraged myself, make it your priority to know a person who can disciple you. And make it your priority to know a person whom you can disciple. Somebody can pour into you and you can pour into somebody else. You can receive the crucible of refining. And you can give out the crucible of refining. Now, if you're thinking that you don't need that, if you're thinking that you don't want that, if you're thinking that you can't see a way There's just no way within your schedule, within your workload, within your many commitments, within your priorities, or within your personal history and memory of neglect and abuse and tragedy. If you can't see a way in any of that to be a spiritual parent or to be a spiritual child, you know, because you're thinking there's no time, there's no, there's no way, there's There's no one. There's no desire. There's no need. Then I think you need to hear Paul's words that have been preserved for almost 2,000 years directly for you today. And and I want to say this in a spirit of gentleness because it's not meant to be heavy-handed and it's not meant to disrespect whatever you suffered and whatever you're afraid of. So hear this from the Apostle Paul. Already you have all that you want. Already you've become kings and queens. You are rich. You are held in honor. You are strong. You are so wise in Christ. Your problem is not time, and it's not energy, and it's not commitments, and it's not past experiences although we've got to wrestle through all of that. Your problem is the Corinthian syndrome. You have forgotten or you have never learned that God provides and God answers 
And God trains when you acknowledge that you are weak. When you acknowledge that you are needy. And you are not as honorable. And you are not as strong as you thought you were. What discipleship must look to for hope, for power, for results, for progress is Christ himself. It's not just about becoming like him. It's looking to him, to the one who said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Your discipline in the crucible of truth and grace must begin with him, with Jesus himself. You know, the author of the letter to the Hebrews said that although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience. Isn't that fascinating? It's similar to what we read earlier today from Philippians chapter 2 where Paul writes, Jesus, although he was God when he became a human being, didn't act like he was trying to be God, but submitted himself humbled himself and became a servant such to the point that he submitted himself to death. And in a similar way, the author of Hebrews says, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You see, Jesus, the perfect, sinless, spotless son of of God submitted to the crucible of his heavenly father's discipline, right? So you and I have a hard time submitting to discipline and entrusting ourselves to discipleship. Jesus himself submitted, who had no sin, who submitted himself to the crucible of God's discipline as a man, not because he had displeased the father, but because you had, because I had. And so the Apostle Paul, in another place, calls Jesus, listen to this, the firstborn among many brothers. The first of a new kind of child. The first child of a new kind of human family with God as its father, with Jesus as its head, as its big brother, because Jesus gives us, by faith, his Likeness. Remember, we're talking about discipleship is all about family resemblance. By faith, God gives you a gift. And in terms of what we're talking about today, God's righteousness granted to you as a gift, it's, it's Jesus, by faith in him, gives you his likeness. The way Jesus resembles the Father perfectly, by faith in him, he gives you as a gift that perfect family resemblance. Jesus endured the greatest crucible of all. It broke his body. It bled out his blood. It hung him on a cross. It threw him into hell and into death and the grave for three days. He endured the greatest crucible to purify you and me. And when we when we submit to each other, when, when we do this, when... When we nurture relationships of correction and love that refine us, we imitate him beautifully. 
We bear Jesus' resemblance as we submit to one another out of reverence to him, where correction and love in balance become the dynamic of our relationships. The author of Hebrews also said in Hebrews chapter 12, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So discipleship is like spiritual parenting. And, and its goal is Christ-likeness in you. But its source, its power, its drive, and its completion is Jesus himself. So make it your priority wherever you are on your journey of faith with Jesus. Make it your priority to ask him for discipleship, to ask him to put somebody in your life that you can pour into, whether you're spoon-feeding them or whether as two adults in the faith you are encouraging one another on in correction and love or whether you're the one that needs to be spoon-fed. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay to admit that you need to be spoon-fed. Or it's okay that you're still in first grade or middle school, spiritually speaking, because Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Don't let pride prevent you from asking Jesus to be a part of a discipling-type relationship. Test him on that, and he will prove himself faithful to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son who bore your likeness in human flesh. We ask, Lord, for faith to trust him in being able to trust you. I think that's what this is about. We reject human leaders because we reject you like the Israelites did time and time again. Father, we reject you. We confess that, that we don't simply reject spiritual guidance in others. We reject your guidance. And we reject your guidance in others. And, and we confess it. And we're sorry for it. It has held us back. It has left us in infancy for so long. And we ask for the faith in your son to see your son as he truly is the perfect child, the big brother who leads us uh, into your likeness. Uh, Lord, may we see Jesus and trust Jesus for all he is and out of reverence for him, find in each other that which glorifies him, not ourselves. May discipleship in this church and in our lives and in our families be about Jesus and not about our personality and not about our style, not even about our past. In Christ's name, amen.